The Super Bowl is an annual cultural litmus test. What did we find out about our culture this past Sunday night? And is the tide about to turn on the transgender ideology destroying our kids? A groundbreaking whistleblower account shows signs of hope. Plus, TikTok has removed one of our most popular videos without explanation, and we have no way to appeal the decision. We share the video and test out YouTube's tolerance for the same content, plus a follow-up on pastors who seriously love to cave on same-sex marriage. It's getting harder and harder and harder than ever to speak the truth in this culture. So you best consider this is your favorite night of the week, The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome in for season six, episode 22 of The Deep End, where we talk about what's going on in culture from a Christian worldview. And I would appreciate your support if you would subscribe to the channel, hit that like button, hit that notification bell, get notified on your smartphone device every time we go live because you do not want to miss an episode of this content because you never know if it's going to get taken down. Yes, TikTok, that Chinese Trojan horse that's invading our youth and corrupting their minds basically took down one of our videos. We're going to tell you which one that is towards the end of the show today. So hit that subscribe button, that notification bell, and that like button, and we will get this content to you as soon as possible. So remember, it is Valentine's Day, February 14th, and we like to talk about Russell Stover's or candies or cards or having a great date with our loved one. But did you actually know that St. Valentine's was beheaded for breaking the cultural standards set by the evil emperors of his day? Yes, this piece from Fox News. Let us remember that on this day, February 14th, 270, sorry, 270 AD, St. Valentine was beaten, beheaded for defying emperor's marriage ban. St. Valentine Day roses and romance contrast sharply with the grisly death of the martyr devoted to love. So yes, this was a third century Roman priest, St. Valentinus, who is brutally beaten and beheaded after marrying couples in defiance of Emperor Claudius's ban on the sacrament of marriage on February 14th, AD 270. See, this is how it goes, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing new under the sun. And so if the cultural uh, leaders uh, hated Christian leaders of their day, they will hate Christian leaders of our day. You just have to stand for what God stands for and you will be, you will be cut off. In, in the case of Valentine's life, you will be cut off physically. But in case of my life, you will be cut off digitally. And so this is what's happening today. We're, we're not to be surprised. We're just supposed to and realize that the truth has always been hated by the powerful because they have something to lose when you set men free. So that's just a quick reminder of what's going on. Now let's head over to Deep End News and talk about the Super Bowl because the Super Bowl shows us a lot of who we are and we've got a lot to learn about us. Amazingly, about Jesus through the Super Bowl. Who would have thought? Let's do it. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. Okay, in the realm of the ridiculous, a few things about the Super Bowl. First, we start with that bastion of intellectualism on the ABC daytime show, The View. Evidently, The View has not been watching the Super Bowl for more than two years because they believed that this was the first time that, I guess, black quarterbacks ever made it to the Super Bowl. So watch this little piece from The View. Oh, the only well, thing that would have made it better for me is, you know, finally we know that black quarterbacks can lead teams. So, and 
are smart enough to lead well, teams. I would like to see. I, I you, always knew that. That right? was never a that. question. We knew but, that. But, um, you know, it takes people a minute uh, to catch up. How about some black we'll owners? Right some black owners. Okay, so I guess now they didn't realize that black quarterbacks have been involved in the NFL for quite a while. And just to remind you that this is nothing new, Doug Williams won a quarter, uh, won a Super Bowl in 1987 for the Washington, dare I say, Redskins. Yes, millennials, black people were afforded the opportunity to play in the NFL before you were old enough to realize that. And they did pretty darn good, too. Steve McNair, 1999. Donovan McNabb, 2004. Losing to my beloved Patriots. Colin Kaepernick, 2012. Russell Wilson, 2013 and 14. And he even won a Super Bowl as well. Cam Newton, 2015. Patrick Mahomes, 2019, 2020, 2022. And Jalen Hurts, 2022. Or technically 2023. Because that's when they play. The 2022 NFL season game is in the next year. Or Super Bowl games in the next year. I mean, I get that everything has to be about the advancement of non-whites today. And we have to celebrate every time someone who is not white and heterosexual does something well. But they've been, been doing pretty darn good for years. And the trajectory looks even better in the foreseeable future for the black quarterback. So I'm not sure uh, if the view commentators recently discovered this, but <laughs> it has been something that's been happening for quite some time. Also, there was a halftime show, and I have a few comments on that. The good news is that the NFL has finally absolved itself of the sins it committed against Colin Kaepernick to the effect that Rihanna was finally willing to do the halftime show. You might not remember this, but Rihanna actually refused to perform at the halftime show in 2018 because of how the NFL treated Colin Kaepernick after he decided to sit initially for being benched and then ultimately to claim that he was standing against police brutality and then getting paid millions for it uh, as a result. So she rejected the invitation in 2018 and now here we are five years later and she said, okay, I will perform. Perhaps, she thought, uh, they are indeed finally woke enough at the NFL. After all, they had all-female flyover of the Jets Right before the game, they had two black quarterbacks, like we already talked about starting the game. And then we realize now today that struggling Colin Kaepernick is now worth $20 million, seven years after sitting for the national anthem during a meaningless preseason game. So sitting for what you believe in definitely pays, ladies and gentlemen. Most importantly, they played the black national anthem during the game. This is the Hill reporting Black National Anthem performed at Super Bowl for the first time. Cheryl Lee Ralph belted out the game. Sounded great. Nice song. Beautiful song. Beautiful lyrics. But this is called the Black National Anthem. The title of the song is Lift Every Voice and Sing. And it has me asking a few questions. Number one question is this. If Lift Every Voice and Sing is the Black National Anthem, what do we call the Star Spangled Banner? Is that the White National Anthem? Is that the White, Asian, Brown, Native American national anthem and here's the second question if black people get a national anthem who else should get one surely we should have i don't know the japanese national anthem because we did throw them in internment camps during world war ii and of course the way we treated native americans is horrible they absolutely deserve a native american national anthem most importantly, let us not forget the painful legacy of suffering that we white straight males laid on the backs of LGBTQIA persons and non-persons. And uh, that definitely demands another <laughs> national anthem, the LGBT, the, the Rainbow Coalition National Anthem. Anyway, 
just crazy times that we live in. It's amazing how we just sit silently, silently by as our cultural movers and shakers move to divide us even more and more. I have no problem with lift every voice and sing. I have no problem with them singing it at the NFL football game. I don't care because it doesn't matter to me about this kind of thing. It just kind of sounds weird calling it the black national anthem. What does that make the other national anthem? Everybody but black national anthem? Do the blacks get two national anthems? How is that fair to the other races, and other cultures, subcultures of America? I don't get it. Maybe you could explain it to me and I would really love it. If you are black and you're watching this show, let me know your thoughts about the lift every voice and sing national anthem, black national anthem song. What do you think? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Is this just pandering? Is this just for money? Let me know. I, I'm really curious to find out what you think. I know what I think. I think it's ridiculous. And I think we should just have one national anthem and we should all come around that. But you know, what's 2023? And again, everything is up for grabs in 2023. So let's talk about the halftime show with Rihanna. I actually thought the halftime show was pretty good. The staging, the rigging, the choreography were incredible. It's hard to put that stuff together. And I got to give them credit where credit is due. Only a few crotch grabs, which is a gross act in itself, but especially gross when the person grabbing the crotch is pregnant. So Rihanna, you know, she, I don't know, a tribute to Michael Jackson or whatever, decided to grab her crotch a few times and float around on these, uh, these uh, rigged up stages across the stadium down there in Phoenix, Arizona. I was listening to the songs and I never realized how many songs Rihanna is responsible for on the radio or at least at my gym where I work out. I don't listen to music much at all, neither Christian nor non-Christian music. I'm an old white dude. What do you expect? Well, the show was pretty decent in my opinion. It was not sexual, uh, overtly sexual. It was not demonic. How about that? Like, we're, the Grammys have set the bar so low in our culture that we can actually say things like this. Hey, it was pretty good. They did not worship Satan tonight. Pretty darn good. Like that's how low the bar has been set for assessing our cultural moments. Yes, Rihanna was up and down all over on these floating platforms. That itself was an act of bravery since the Air Force has now been shooting everything down in the sky that weighs over three pounds to make up for Biden's reluctance to shoot down the Chinese spy balloon last week. I don't know if you heard about that. They're shooting everything down. Be careful about flying your drone this weekend. The Air Force might come for it. Anyway, the big word yesterday, though, was on the performance of Rihanna being done uh, was was tremendous because of one particular fact. What was that fact? Uh, she was pregnant. She was pregnant and she was performing at the halftime show, which makes me think this is how our culture thinks now. Okay, hooray for wanted pregnancies, right? If Rihanna did not want this pregnancy, if she had an appointment at the abortion clinic on Monday morning uh, to remove the unwanted pregnancy, well, then it was just a clump of cells. And so I guess it wasn't that brave to get up on those floating platforms and perform. But, but in this case, because Rihanna has decided as a self-appointed guru of what she considers life and unlife in her belly, that she wants this child. And so because she wants this child, we should hail her as exceptional for performing as a pregnant woman in the halftime show. Oops, sorry, pregnant person in the halftime show. Again, this is the cultural conundrum. This is the paradox of values that our culture is currently celebrating. You're only human if we decide that you're human and only the, people, the only people that can decide if you're human are pregnant persons and we can't even decide if those pregnant persons are women or not <laughs> what a culture of crazy that we live in but here was something that is particularly noteworthy to christians the super bowl ads always get a lot of headlines 
after the game because they're funny or they're, you know, rehashing old storylines. Like my particular favorite was when John Travolta came out and sang the opening number to Grease and did it with the cast from Scrubs. Don't get the idea there. But anyway, I did. I did like that. I did like that ad. I thought it was funny. I love it when they bring the old uh, storylines back and and the people come out with all of their plastic surgery that make them look like old 60 year, young 60 year olds to reperform their numbers from the past. But this particular year of Super Bowl ads, the most discussed post Super Bowl was, believe it or not, a Christian advertisement campaign called He Gets Us. Now, the details about this campaign are that for the past 10 months, the He Gets Us ads have been showing up on billboards, YouTube channels, television screens, and most recently during other NFL playoff games across the country, spreading the message that Jesus understands the human condition. The campaign is a project of the Servant Foundation, an Overland Park Kansas nonprofit that does business as the signatory. But the donors backing the campaign have been anonymous until now. Evidently, back in November, David Green, the billionaire co-founder of Hobby Lobby, told talk show host Glenn Beck that he and his family was helping to fund the ads. And these ads are really impressive, if you ask me. Uh, the first one here we're going to preview or look at is uh, pictures of young children, just innocence, you know, obviously hearkening back to Jesus's words, Matthew 18, if you don't come into the kingdom as a little child, you cannot enter it. That particular picture with a cancer-ridden child hovering over the toilet really strikes at the heart. Uh, black and white children coming together, hugging, beautiful picture of how we're not born hating people based on the color of their skin. Uh, he gets us, all of us, Jesus. He gets us.com slash be childlike. All the slash whatever it is, go to the same site we're going to show you in just a moment. And then this, this commercial was particularly powerful, highlighting all the aggression and animosity of the last three years of American life. And so, whether it be black on black or old on young or uh, <laughs> server to customer, just really great picking up the last three years of cultural animosity. And this song rocks. I don't know what the song is. Anybody know the song? Please let me know in the chat below or to the right. The lockdown protest, the George Floyd protest, black on black protest, white on white protest, all this animosity between us. And then just fast forwarding here. Uh, the tagline here is Jesus loved the people we hate. He gets us, all of us. And again, Jesus... He gets us.com slash love your enemies again, forward slash same, same location. So, you know, that has been, that is a quick rundown of the, he gets us commercials. So anyway, I did a little bit of a search on my own because this was news to me. Um, I did see these ads somewhere and somebody asked on the 10 questions last week about this particular ad. So I did a little bit of research and I went to the website and you go to this page. Uh, it says right off the bat, he gets us has an agenda. If you click on the explore button, it goes to this next page where it says, do you want to read about Jesus, uh, but don't know where to start? Try these easy reading plans. And so the question is, okay, so what's the denomination that they're going to lead me to? What church are they going to lead me to? No, nope, they're going to lead me to you version where I can read a Bible reading plan uh, seven days here uh, talking about Jesus basically is leading me to the gospels so that I can discover for myself the claims of Jesus Christ uh, in black and white, as was the original intention of John 
and the other gospel writers. These things are written, John chapter 20, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. So they, the campaign in the Super Bowl ads, which I guess totaled $20 million, an expensive campaign and kudos to the Green family of Hobby Lobby for sponsoring this content and putting it on the largest most watched program in the annual calendar year of America? I mean, great. How many people? 140 million people watched the Super Bowl, watched the ads, see this and saw this. And you would think, okay, Christians of the world rejoice. Like this is good. This is good that we, that we have somebody talking about Jesus. And would the Christian people stand behind their fellow brothers and sisters as we try to get people to open their Bibles and learn about Jesus? No, 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 no. Because we Christians can be just as divisive as our secular counterparts. And so here came the Twitter trolls talking about how we can't reduce Jesus and Christianity to be kind. It's an ineffective ad. It peddles a fake Jesus. Hobby Lobby. There's nothing wrong with religion. It's the people that they're using it. Oh gosh, man. Millions of dollars wasted. A pointless waste of money. Who funds he gets us? I missed the end. I assumed it was a BLM commercial and went to grab some more wings, which which I can understand that. It came across a little bit like it may have been a... Um, a BLM infomercial, but these are Christians. Like these are Christians coming at other Christians and saying, this is wrong. This is bad. And then on top of that, on the other end of the cultural spectrum, you get the uh, <laughs> notable uh, Congresswoman AOC taking to Twitter and suggesting that Christianity is both fascist and this was far too much money spent on promoting fascism. Here was the tweet from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from District 14 in New York. Something tells me Jesus would not spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl ads to make fascism look benign. <sighs> so much to talk about here from this one tweet. It's amazing that she constantly plays the standing up for the marginalized card, right? Or standing up for people who are mistreated, except for Christians, right? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez obviously does not know that more Christians have been murdered for their faith in the last 100 years of world history than in the previous 1900 years of Christianity combined. There are more Christians in detention camps right now than ever before in North Korea, Nigeria, China, elsewhere. And yet this faith is called what? Fascism. Reading the Bible is fascism. I, I, I know of some Christians, young girls, Christians, who really look up to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Just want to let you know, just want to give you the 411 here. She thinks you're a part of a fascist movement. Okay. She equates Christianity with Trumpism or being a Republican or voting conservative values such as, I don't know, um, pro-life issues. And now, obviously, when it's a Christian thing, the money is suddenly an issue. This is a woman who wants to tax the rich and <laughs> wears a dress, actually, that was designed by a dress designer who didn't pay her taxes, nor did she pay her employees very well. She wore that dress to the Met Gala last year, made big news, wants to take their money and give it away to people who don't earn money, all in the sake of equity. And now she has a problem with this money being used to promote Christianity, which she considers to be fascism. Interesting. 
I always have a little red flag in my mind that goes up to, though, when people criticize the spending of money to make Jesus known. It's amazing because they, these people come out of the woodwork when the church spends money on advertising or on a building or on something to beautify the building. Uh, that then suddenly the money is an issue. Like like American Christians themselves too, like nominal Christians I'm talking about. They can drive around in incredible cars, live in luxury homes, pay $5,000 for a brand new couch. But the moment that the church pays money to beautify that building, suddenly it's like, why isn't that money being used for the poor? Why is that money being used for the poor? And this tweet from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just smacks of that same exact feel. I've been a pastor a long time and I've seen churchgoers, nominal, I want to make sure you understand, nominal churchgoers who talk about what the money should be used for when the church spends money on anything that they don't want the church spending money on, right? And, and there's a passage in the scriptures. In John chapter 12, the woman comes in, she breaks the alabaster jar of ointment, she pours it on Jesus' feet, very expensive jar of oil. And then someone speaks up and says in John 12, 5, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. How dare you spend that money on Jesus? How dare you pour out that, that, that perfume on the Lord's feet? Who said that, by the way? Pop quiz. Who said it? Give you a second before I reveal. Judas Iscariot. Mm -hmm. Judas Iscariot said it. He was the one who was suddenly concerned about how the money was spent when it wasn't spent how he thought the money should, should be spent. And again, this is only nominal Christians do this. Only the people who nominally associate with Jesus have an issue with, with the money when the money is not spent the way they want it. And, and I love that fact that John does not leave that there. He actually gives us a qualifier. He gives us a little commentary in the next verse. John says, not that he, that is Judas, cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Interestingly enough, AOC wants to be in charge of the rich people's money and now has a problem with people spending money on Jesus. <laughs> Things never change. Nothing new under the sun, Solomon said. Then Jesus followed up with this line, AOC, just so you know who you're aligned with. In verse 7, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot stress this enough, but Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, the revealed word of the living God said the following, you will always have the poor among you and no amount of government assistance or government programs will fix that AOC. I know this is hard to believe <laughs> because you absolutely think that money is the solution to every cultural ethical problem in our world. But it is not. It is not. Scripture warns that the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. Money does not fix problems. Money just amplifies what you are. That's all money does. If you're poor, you will be poor with a lot of money. If you are rich, you will be, you will be whatever you are with a lot of money. Whatever you were when you were poor, you will be rich. You will be that person when you were rich. Money does not fix poverty. You know what fixes poverty? Hard work. Families. Moms and dads staying together. Um, forgiveness in the family so that you stay together as a family and you don't get divorced. Like treating each other with respect. Raising your kids to take care of themselves. That's what fixes poverty. Not governmental institutions. Look, our government spends an enormous amount of money on the poor. Helping the poor. Housing the poor. Fixing poverty. Solving poverty. And it's not gotten better. 
not getting better. The war on poverty has been proven to be a spectacular disaster in our country's history. And yet there are still politicians peddling this nonsense that if we just give the poor more money, then poverty will be solved. No, no, that does not solve poverty. Families staying together solves poverty and working solves poverty. But AOC brings up a little bit of a deep end commentary to Christians and particularly to the nominal Christians who are watching me. Do you give, do you give, like, are you one of those people that complains when the church spends money, but you don't give a dime or you give very minimally? Like you throw a $20 bill in the offering or a $50 bill if you're feeling particularly generous. Maybe $50 a week is your tithe. Maybe you make $500 a week and that's your tithe. But I have often found, and to go along with the Super Bowl illustration or football illustration, I have often found in my history with the church and experience with Christians, particularly nominal Christians, that as in a football stadium, the worst fans sit in the cheapest seats. Yes, I have been up to the 300 section of NFL football stands. I don't go there anymore. One time I went there and everybody swore and cursed at each other. A fight broke out in the men's room and people were just generally deviants for three and a half hours watching a football game. I've also sat in the 100 sections, the club seat sections. And I can't tell you the vast difference between the, the fans who pay $40 for a ticket and the fans who pay $400 for a ticket. By the way, I've never paid for an NFL ticket in my life. But anyway, um, I've always been invited by somebody. But anyway, the people who sit in the expensive seats, they're always so positive and happy. They're always so pro the team. I've never seen a fight break out in the club seat section. You know why? Because those people are financially invested in the movement. The people who have the least financial investment are often the nastiest, which is just what AOC exhibits here. She has no vested interest in the Christian faith. She does not like the Christian faith. She is not pro-Christian. She's pro-everything else, but she's definitely not pro-Christian. And the moment that she espoused this, she reminded me of Judas's famous line that when someone else spends an exorbitant amount of money on Jesus, the Judases come out of the woodwork to complain about it and suddenly talk about the poor. And that's exactly what Jesus talked about in John chapter 12. Look, I get it if you don't want to give to the church and you want to be a cheapskate. You want to get all the church has to offer you, child ministry and help with your family and even saving your marriage potentially because the faith of Christianity can save your marriage. Jesus can save your marriage by changing your heart and your spouse's heart and he can put your family back together and then you do have the right absolutely to live the rest of your life as a cheapskate Christian and God will not even strike you dead for that. Nope, nope. You might actually just get more and more grace because of that. But can you just please shut your mouth when other people give great sums of money to make Jesus known? Can you not be a Judas? Because believe it or not, it does require money to make Jesus known. We have to support these people. We have to get the word out. And it costs money to make advertisements work on television, particularly on the Super Bowl. So good for the He Gets Us people. And to the Christians who criticize them, what on earth? Like, like more examples from Christians. The Terry Green on Twitter, David Green, Hobby Lobby is behind the He Gets His campaign. I won't go back to Hobby Lobby. I'm boycotting Hobby Lobby now. 
Uh, <laughs> more, Jesus is not like us. He's not God and, I'm sorry, he's God and not a sinner. The issue here is you have a, he gets his version of Jesus conforming to sinful men rather than the biblical Jesus, which we are commanded to conform. That is uh, Chris on Twitter. More and more Christians just attacking Christians. And then, you know, we just don't need to help out the secularists. Like we don't need to help them out with attacking other Christians. But I'm going to get to a larger point in just a moment. Uh, the Jews also have a problem with the He Gets Us campaign. This uh, Jewish writer writing on the Religious News Service uh, t- writes this opinion piece, Why the He Gets Us Super Bowl ads make Jews nervous. And it was flaunting the images of all of the problems of America right in line with Jesus's message and his crucifixion. And the article goes on to state that I get it. You want to make Jesus known. And, and then he says, you got to make Jesus known amongst Christians, not non-Christians. Um, no, that's not how evangelism works. Evangelism works when we make Christ, non-Christians aware of who Jesus is. Not to be outdone by the Christians attacking the He Gets This campaign, the alphabet mob came out in full force with a thorough expose on how the He Gets Us people have all the nasty ties required to make them an anti-LGBT hate organization that is also in favor of abortion restrictions and yada, 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 the same stupid narrative again and again. Yes, tying them up with MAGA and tying them up with the Republicans and anti-LGBT hate and anti-abortion laws and la, 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 la. All this to say, the He Gets This, the he gets this campaign, uh, they actually might be the most clear example of what it was like when Jesus actually walked on the earth with the disciples in the first century. When he walked on the earth in the first century, He was hated by who? The religious people. He didn't fit their mold of how their Messiah should look. And he also was hated by the secularists, the powerful people in high places such as Herod and Pilate and other notable people who put him on the cross, Roman centurions and whatnot. It's truly amazing, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus still stirs up so many people in so many different ways. He is the dividing line of human history. And and all of this response to the He Gets Us campaign uh, on the Super Bowl, in, in the Super Bowl ad, reminds me, my mind immediately went back to this. I don't know if you remember it, but I remember it well. I had just started pastoring the church that I pastor in 2004, when Mel Gibson uh, committed the cultural sin of producing the Passion of the Christ a very real and very clear uh, illustration or, or, or presentation of what Jesus suffered on the cross for us. And I remember how our culture literally blew up. Fox News, CNN, the cultural movers and shakers, the Jews, the secularists, the powerful people. How dare he? And then the Christians came out and said, well, it's got to be biblically accurate. Well, it might not be. It's too Catholic. It's too this. It's too... And... <laughs> Once again, Jesus divided, divided people. He did that when he was here the first time. And every time we get a clear picture of who Jesus is, he divides once again. Remember, Jesus said himself in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. He's going to divide. He's going to separate. 
He's going to separate religious people from himself. He's going to separate secularists and Jews, his own people, from himself. The followers of him will often blow it for him. But this is the reality. And this is my biggest takeaway from the Super Bowl. Jesus is still the dividing line of humanity. He's going to separate you from family and friends. That's for sure. He's going to separate you from coworkers. He's going to separate you from people that you used to be very tied and close to. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You know, we can't have Jesus our way. He can't fit what we demand him to fit. He can't fit the mold that we've created for him. He's Jesus Christ, the ever-living God, the Son. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is why when we share our faith, we can't just say God. We must say Jesus. When athletes stand up and celebrate and give God the glory, they need to say Jesus. When people talk about their baptism testimony, they need to talk about Jesus, not their feelings, not their childhood trauma. They need to talk about Jesus because he's the one who changes us. He's the one who separates us from this world and seals us in the body and makes us right with God. And because of him, history is divided, A.D. and B.C. And all the secularists and the alphabet mob and AOC are all going to write on their checks whenever they write their next check. It is February blank 2023. And the moment they write those four digits, 2023, is the moment they confess that Jesus Christ is the one who separates human history. And there's no getting around it. There's no way you can avoid it. The whole of history is centered on him, even if you reject him. Anyway, important stuff to look at. Uh, an crazy time in which we live. And again, reminds me of 2004, the Passion of the Christ. And it is what it is. And it's kind of why I love being a Christ follower. We're always stirring the pot of the culture. Amen? Okay. Anyway, the tide of the alphabet mob regarding the transing of the kids might start cracking, might start turning. The dam is starting to crack. I'm trying to get my metaphors right here. I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about that on the deep end commentary. When you don't know what to know. Or when you want to know what to know. The Deep End Commentary. Okay, this is quite uh, a piece of news from the free press. We have our first whistleblower uh, regarding the transing of the kids madness that is happening in our culture. This is Jamie Reed. She worked at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Uh, the title of the article here from the Free Press is, I thought I was saving trans kids, now I'm blowing the whistle, and, and this is good. We need whistleblowers uh, that are in the system. And so working to transition kids from whatever gender they, they were born to the gender that they feel, she is now finding from her own experience working with them, this is horrible. We are hurting 
children. So I just want to read, and pardon me as I read a little bit more than normal on the show, I want to read a, a couple of sections of her testimonial because you need to hear this. Christians need to hear this. Christian parents need to hear this because, as I say uh, regularly, um, we're not crazy. We're not crazy for not going along with culture. And we need to hear that from the outside of us. I, I know how the devil will play with you. He will convince you that you maybe need to stop <laughs> holding the, the line here and go with culture. No, no. Eventually, culture is going to come back around, I think, or Jesus is going to come back. It's one of those two. Either Jesus comes back and <laughs> says everything straight immediately, or culture finally swings back to some manner of sanity and, and the world lasts for another hundred or so years longer. I don't know, but this is good news. So let me read her testimony and uh, just tell you what happened. Soon after my arrival at the transgender center, I was struck by the lack of formal protocols for treatment. The center's physician co-directors were essentially the sole authority. At first, the patient population was tipped toward what used to be the traditional instance of a child with gender dysphoria, a boy quite often young who wanted to present as who wanted to be a girl. Until 2015 or so, a very small number of these boys comprised the population of pediatric gender dysphoria cases. Then across the Western world, there began to be a dramatic increase in a new population. Teenage girls, many with no previous history of gender distress, suddenly declared they were transgender and demanded immediate treatment with testosterone. She said, I certainly saw this at the center. One of my jobs was to do intake for new patients and their families. When I started, there were probably 10 such calls a month. When I left, there were 50 and about 70% of the new patients were girls. Sometimes clusters of girls arrived from the same high school. This concerned me, but I didn't, but didn't, but didn't feel I was in the position to sound some kind of alarm back then. There was a team of about eight of us and only one other person brought up the kinds of questions I had. Anyone who raised doubts ran the risk of being called a transphobe. To begin transitioning, the girls needed a letter of support from a therapist, usually one we recommended, who they had to see only once or twice for the green light. To make it more efficient for the therapist, we offered them a template for how to write a letter in support of transition. The next stop was a single visit to the endocrinologist for a testosterone prescription. That's all it took. When a female takes testosterone, the profound and permanent effects of the hormone can be seen in a matter of months. Voices dropped, uh, voices dropped beards sprout, body fat is redistributed. Sexual interest explodes, aggression increases, and mood can be unpredictable. Our patients were told about some side effects, including sterility. But after working at the center, I came, came to believe that teenagers are simply not capable of fully grasping what it means to make the decision to become infertile while still a minor. Many encounters with patients emphasized to me how little these young people understood the profound impacts changing gender would have on their bodies and minds, but the center downplayed the negative consequences and emphasized the need for transition. As the center's website said, left untreated, this is the center speaking, by the way, left untreated gender dysphoria has any number of consequences from self-harm to suicide, but when you take away the gender dysphoria by allowing a child to be who he or she is, we're noticing that goes away. These studies have, these studies have now, sorry, the studies we have show these kids often wind up functioning psychosocially as well or as better than their peers. End quote. That's the, again, that's the center talking. She gets back to saying there are no reliable studies showing this. Indeed, the experiences of many of the center's patients prove how false these assertions are. 
How little patients understood what they were getting into was illustrated by a call we received at the center in 2020 from a 17-year-old biological female patient who was on testosterone. She said she was bleeding from the vagina. In less than an hour, she had soaked through in a heavy pad her jeans and towels she wrapped around her waist. The nurse at the center told her to go to the emergency room right away. We found out later this girl had intercourse, and because testosterone thins the vaginal tissue, her vaginal her vaginal canal, sorry, her vaginal canal had ripped open. She had to be sedated and given surgery to repair the damage. She wasn't the only vaginal laceration case we heard about. Now, just so you know, and I probably should have given you a warning beforehand, but there's a little bit more content that we're going to show you on the show tonight. You might want to get your kids out of the room. I'm not sure, but you need to hear it because this is her testimony. And we got to see what they're doing to the kids so that we fight against this ideology as much as we possibly can. Anyway, she writes, other girls were disturbed by the effects of testosterone on, the, on their clitoris, which enlarges and grows into what looks like a microphallus or a tiny penis. I counseled one patient who, whose enlarged clitoris now extended below her vulva, and it chafed and rubbed painfully in her jeans. I advised her to get the kind of comp compression undergarments worn by biological men who dress to pass as female. At the end of the call, I thought to myself, wow, we hurt these kids or this kid. In Missouri, only one patient consent is required for treatment of their child, but when there was a dispute between the parents... It seemed the center always took the side of the affirming parent. No, no shock there. My concerns about this approach to dissenting parents grew in 2019 when one of our doctors actually testified in a custody hearing against a father who opposed a mother's wish to start their 11-year-old daughter on puberty blockers. I had done the original intake call and I found the mother quite disturbing. She and the father were getting divorced, and that is often the case in these in these situations. Her and her father were her and the father were getting divorced, and the mother descri described the daughter as kind of a tomboy. So now the mother was convinced her child was trans. But when I asked her daughter if her daughter had ab adopted a boy's name, if she was distressed about her body, if she was saying she felt like a boy, the mother said no. I explained that girl doesn't meet the criteria for an evaluation. Then a month later, the mother called back and said her, now used, her daughter now used a boy's name, was in distress over her body, and wanted to transition. This time, the mom and daughter were given an appointment. Our, our providers decided the girl was trans and prescribed a puberty blocker to prevent her normal development. That's an 11-year-old girl, by the way, just so you know. Reminder. The father adamantly disagreed said this was all coming from the mother and a custody battle ensued. After the hearing where our doctor testified in favor of the transition, the, the judge died it, sided with the mother. Uh, she talks about receiving poor performance reviews, uh, starting to disconnect from the ideology of the University School of Medicine, and then she details her departure uh, like this. In all my years at the Washington University School of Medicine, I received solidly, solidly positive performance reviews, but in 2021, that changed. I got a below average mark for my judgment and working relationships, cooperative spirit. Although I was described as responsible, conscientious, hardworking, and productive, the evaluation also noted at times Jamie responds to uh, responds poorly to direction from management with defensiveness and hostility. Things came to a head at a half-day retreat in the summer of 2022 in front of a team. Uh, in front of the team, the doctor said that my colleague and I had to stop questioning the, quote, medicine and the science, end quote, as well as their authority. Then an administrator told us we had to get on board or get out. It became clear that the purpose of the retreat was to deliver those messages to us. Okay, so there you go. This is why I take on COVID misinformation and the science, the science of COVID nonsense and Dr. Fauci and the medical establishment of our culture right now. This is why. Right here because of whistleblower testimonies like this. And I've got another story for you in just a moment. But this is good that we have at least one whistleblower and I'm hearing on Twitter with the people that I follow that there is another whistleblower that is about to come forward from a different 
gender transition clinic. By the way, these gender transition clinics are sprouting up everywhere. Like 10 years ago, there's like three of them in the country. Now there's like 45 of them. They're all over the place and they're coming after the kids, mostly from kids from poor families, divided families, divorced families. They don't know who they are. And I just remind you listeners and watchers, think of what it was like when you were 12 years old and puberty was coming upon you and you had no clue what you were like and how your body was going to respond and how uncomfortable you felt in your own skin. This is normal. And we grow, go through these phases and we grow through these phases. And eventually we resolve back to knowing and understanding a little bit more about what that phase was all about and how it made us who we are. But, but now today's medical establishment is all in on letting the youngest members of our society tell the oldest members of our society the most asinine ideologies and the oldest members are forced and compelled to go along with the ideologies of the youngest members of our societies. This is not good for anybody. But more good signs is to look across the pond, as I said last week, look across the pond, across the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> that's what I mean, and see what's happening in the UK. Reuters reported, this is two years ago, the UK court rules against trans clinic over the treatment of children. Uh, this is happening more and more uh, in uh, the UK. Well, of particular note is the Tavistock Gender Clinic, which is now facing a thousand lawsuits right now. Uh, from gender reassignment regret people. I don't know what we call these people. This is all a new terminology. We have to just say what it is, say what it is. A thousand lawsuits are coming against the Tavistock Gender Clinic in the UK because of transgender regret. Uh, these three women on the screen now writing a piece called Human Beings Can't Change Sex, We're Not Clownfish, It's Fixed at Birth. Uh, these three women identify themselves as MBM and they are offering to the Scottish Parliament, five years of research that they have done on them, by themselves on the harms and dangers of the transgender ideology. And this is good. This is England's, England's tide is turning and they are, I don't know, three, four, five years ahead of us. And so we need to speak up. We need to share this content. If you are in the medical establishment, you need to say something at your meetings. It might cost you. You might be vilified, but you will be justified in the long run. And this is why Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. What is salt? Salt is a preservative. It keeps the product from spoiling. You are the light of the world. You gotta shine the light on this darkness and this madness that is overtaking our children. Jesus said, if you cause one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it's better that we tie a millstone around your neck and toss you into the sea. God takes these things very seriously. I keep, I hear reports of people who watch the deep end telling me and telling people who, who know me that they're now running for their school board because they want to stand against this social tide and good for you. And I'm interested in hosting you and interviewing you on this channel. I've reached out to some and they refused and they lost their elections. I want to get you exposed to some voters who are pro what you're standing for. We need to fight the good fight. The spiritual fight of, the, of faith is not simply you getting over a few issues. It is a fight for the world. It is a fight for humanity. It is a fight for sanity and truth and how we treat each other. And this madness needs to be fought against tooth and nail until Jesus comes. Another example of whistleblowers. 
This reported by uh, the podcast Trigonometry and the Daily Wire picking this up. Quote, I feel like I'm leaving a cult, end quote. Mother regrets transitioning her four-year-old son. And so I listened to this um, podcast on Trigonometry. It's a very powerful testimony of this particular woman. She's a lesbian. She has two boys. She's in a marriage with a woman. She has two young boys. And she transitioned one because he said he felt like a girl one day. And then the younger boy caught on and decided to transition as well. And then they suddenly woke up to the reality that they were absolutely in a cult. And she writes, I was a social justice organizer and facilitator before social justice overtook the world. I was on the forefront, introducing the concept of intersectionality, progressive organizations, and having people share their pronouns. My friends and I felt we were the cool kids, the vanguard of revolutionary work to change the world, to achieve what people in the social justice movement call collective liberation. I was deeply committed to the work of creating another world that was possible. And uh, she goes on and she talks about this. Uh, uh, two boys, one was four, one was two. The oldest son began to talk about saying that he was a girl. So she talk, took him to a psychologist and the psychologist immediately jumped on the transgender bandwagon. He, he's a girl, go home and celebrate and, and affirm and, and walk him through this. And, and she talked about the madness was this. My child led us into the ideology and then it became our, uh, our job as adults to lead them through it. You, you see the madness there. The child leads you to it. Now you, the adult, has to lead them through it and, and deeper into it. So they transition the older kid, and then the two-year-old son decides that he's transgender because he's looking up to his older brother. This is her story. And suddenly the lights start to go on. Like, what's going on? I can't have two transgender kids. And so a long story short, one of the questions that she asked is, and, and I'll put this up on the screen, uh, here at the bottom if our younger son was driven by an attachment to want to be a girl, could our older son also have this as part of what drove him, an attachment drive to be the same as me? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're a lesbian, married to a woman, and you have two boys who desperately need a dad. Th th this is why heterosexual marriage, should uh, homosexual marriage, should get every Christian upset. Not because we hate homosexual people, absolutely not, no but because of children and how it will affect them and how it will speak to them about what is normal and what is good and healthy for them. I mean, if fate or whatever hadn't intervened in this woman's life, she would have two trans girls with gender reassignment or, or puberty blockers in, in, in injected into them at the age of 12 and 13. And then those kids would grow up and eventually sue their own moms for doing this to them. But, but, but this is, again, why we need to fight and make these things known. As Christians, this does matter. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a world of madness. We live in a world of madness. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 59, 14, justice is turned back and, the righteous, and righteousness stands far off, for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. For all the talk about equity, we will never have it if we don't have justice and righteousness and truth. We will never have it. A, a, a young boy needs a dad. A young girl needs a mom and homosexual unions. I get it. You, you want to shack up with a person of the same sex and in the privacy of your home and all that kind of stuff. It's sin. It's sin. There's no getting around that. The scripture patently refutes whatever claim to uh, uh, normalcy that you want to make about it. It is sin. And Christians need to speak up. Pastors need to teach up. And we need to inform God's people again and again and again because the madness of the alphabet mob will not die out. It will only increase. And if we don't speak up for truth, who will? Now, 
that's what I do here on the deep end, right? I also do it in my pulpit at my church. And I do it about more than just the LGBT craziness or cultural moments like worshiping Satan at the Grammys or whatever else you have. I also talk about the madness of the anxiety craze. I have anxiety craze. And it's getting harder, ladies and gentlemen, for this channel to operate. It's getting harder for me to get this content to you through your cell phone, through your smart device, whatever it is, however you're getting this content. I just want to let you know, the world is coming for me. The world and its system is coming for me. Uh, TikTok just took down our most popular video that we make. Now, you know, I'm not a big fan of TikTok, but I'm on TikTok because I want to get the message out to as many people as possible. I want to get the truth out. And this news was brought to me just before I decided to start this show. Uh, our most popular TikTok video had been viewed by 677,000 different people. And it was on anxiety. And they removed it. They said it violated their terms and conditions. And we have no option to repeal it. And here's the video. And I'm going to play it in its full. And I hate watching myself preach. It's from one of my Sunday sermons. But for your sake, <laughs> and to test YouTube's tolerance, I'm going to play that content here. And it's about anxiety. Watch. Stop saying, I have anxiety. You might get anxious. You might have things stressing you out. You might have concerns in your mind and in your heart. But stop putting a possessive around something that the devil wants you to have. Stop speaking to yourself the exact words the devil wants you to believe about yourself. I have anxiety. I have, I mean, I have addictions too. Well, I have this addiction. No, no, the enemy's coming after me. The flesh is trying to drag me down. Yes, the devil's going after me, but I know something about me. I have the Holy Spirit of God. I have the power of Jesus. I have the Word of God. Start owning what God wants you to own. Start rejecting what God wants you to reject. So that's the video that I guess violates um, TikTok's community guidelines. This is the page now, my TikTok page. So that video is gone. Again, the most viewed uh, video that I have on my TikTok channel. And I was just thinking about this one thing. This is the crazy thought. Imagine the outrage and news coverage that I would get if I, a Christian pastor, posted a video of me coming out as a, I don't know, transgender drag queen pastor, and then it was removed by TikTok. Imagine the news coverage that I would get. I would skyrocket to instant fame, probably get invited to Oprah Winfrey and the next State of the Union address, right? But this is the madness of our culture this is where we are. I don't check any intersectional boxes in our culture of insanity. And for that, I am glad. I don't want to check those boxes. It doesn't matter to me. Those boxes are irrelevant. What matters to me is truth. And it's getting harder and harder to hear the truth. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, you need to support the show. TimHatchLive.com. Buy some swag. Help us get the word out. Because big tech is coming for us. Little me with 2,500 subscribers on YouTube and 14,000 subscribers on TikTok, and they're coming after me? Support the channel. Help us pay some bills. Get this word out. You're helping us send this message farther than ever before. Thank you to those of you who do support us. The show is not done. I just thought I would sneak that in so that you can help us out and we can continue to make the truth known because it's getting harder and harder to hear it. 
Let's do some really good news. Really, really, really good. That's really good news. It's good. So one of the things that I informed you of during, I think, season four of The Deep End was the arrest and closure, uh, arrest of pastors and closure of their churches during the COVID pandemic, particularly in Canada. And the good news out of Canada now is that a judge has dropped the charges against several of those pastors who were holding services during the, ple- the pandemic. The pastors are pleasantly surprised, as they should be. It was a really dark season. That pastor on the screen there is Pastor Tim Stevens. He was acquitted in November after he was arrested twice in 2021 because his Calgary church continued to hold services in defiance of the government orders. Again, you could go to Home Depot, you could go to Lowe's, you could go to the grocery store, you could go to Walmart, but you couldn't go to church. It was insanity. Uh, It was a pandemic, and I will not stop saying that no matter how much they try to silence me. And there's more evidence about that coming out every single day. But nonetheless, the charges have been dropped against several of these pastors. Still a pending case, I think, in the case of Arthur Pavlowski, or uh, whatever his last name is. I'm sorry for butchering it there. But the good news is that several of these pastors are now back and free, and there will be no uh, no consequences for them doing what what the Scriptures teach them to do. Now, that is the good news. We've got to do a deep-end follow-up because— Pastors who stand for truth are few and far between, and pastors that are skating around how to avoid the truth are growing ever more popular. And we need to discuss a follow-up section on the new pastor of Saddleback Church who refuses to answer the question on whether a homosexual couple who comes to Christ should divorce, which is boggling. Let's follow up. The D-D-D-D-Bin follow-up. Okay, so this is Pastor Andy Wood and his co-pastor wife, Stacy, the new lead pastors of Saddleback Church, they were doing a question and answer on Zoom, probably during the pandemic, about uh, what questions their church members had at their old church, Echo Church, I think is in San Jose, California. And they're talking about whether or not, the question is whether or not a homosexual couple who comes to Christ after they've been married in a, I'm sorry, yes, yes, in a same-sex marriage, and they've adopted children, should they divorce? Watch the response. I saw one on divorce. Can I take that one? Um... Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. This says, um, this is from Erica. It says, I have gay friends who came to Jesus after they were married and adopted children. God hates divorce. How would you approach the situation? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's really hard. Yeah. I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's a black and white answer. And I think I would sit with them in it mm. and I would, pray with them and I would try to wrestle through that decision. And I think it's such a life. um, It is such a massive, massive decision that I would probably say, read the Bible, ask the Holy spirit to lead you. And um, I will journey with you with it, with it in it. And as you journey through it with them, I would have an ongoing conversation mm. to ask them how the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding them. Okay, note the words. First off, look at how he kind of gets visual permission from his wife to say what he's saying, which is kind of disturbing to me. Like, be a man, say something. Say something that's noteworthy, speak. Stop being Adam, passively watching your wife uh, interact with a serpent. Unbelievable. And then the words, journey, conversation, Journey, journey, conversation. Uh, <laughs> no mention of repentance, sin, 
uh, scripture, authority, righteousness. These terms are outdated in the seeker-sensitive model of church and leadership. We can't mention those things because they may offend. They may offend, they may offend the very people who need to hear them so that they, may, they might be converted. Anyway, he goes on. I think is how I would handle it. Because I don't, I don't know. There, there are, okay, you know, Lori and Jason, our, our friends are on the line. They, they were missionaries in overseas and they would see people come to faith who had um, in polygamous cultures and they had five spouses. And so what do they do? Do they divorce four of the spouses and keep one of them? Or um, I don't, I don't know. So I think read the Bible. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to relate um, uh, frontline missionaries who are going to new unreached places of the world to modern Americans <laughs> who, who have been uh, casting off the vestiges of cultural Christianity for 40 years and, and we refuse to speak up and say, no, no, no we know, we know that, that homosexual marriage is wrong. We know that polygamy is wrong. Of course, of course we should speak up and say something, but no, 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 we have to, we have to dance around this topic because we're too afraid of, of saying something that might offend. Pray, ask the Holy Spirit to speak. That would be my encouragement. And then journey with them through it. Journey. Yeah. I think that people that draw hard, strong lines. This is me. Um, right and it, it gets really difficult. It, it doesn't take into account how complicated um, the individual situation can be. And yeah. I think that it has to be navigated with nuance and a lot of wisdom and grace. Yeah. And I, I think that part of part of what the enemy does in our minds is that there, there are some situations that are black and white and there are some that are gray. And I think that situations that are more black and white call for a decision and situations that are more gray call for more discernment, prayer and scripture. I mean, pr processing and talking through it. This is the the new model of church leadership, walking through a journey, conversation, pray, read your Bible, ask the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit raises up leaders in the church. The Holy Spirit raises up leaders in the church, okay? So that we speak the words of God that are inspired by the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit will have an effect upon the human heart. Now, now, now there, there's, a, there's a simple solution. You tell the homosexual couple to get divorced. I know God says he hates divorce. He hates divorce from real marriages. Biblical marriages, that's what he hates. But this cultural invention of the last five minutes of human history, homosexual marriage, is not something that God was like, oh, well, I guess the humans decided that the gay people should be married, and now I'm kind of in a bind up here because also I also hate divorce. Hmm, what will the humans decide next for me? No, we don't get to decide what God has said. And it's not difficult. And yes, we can draw a hard line decision. Now, we should walk, in that sense, walk the people through the process of divorce and caring for those kids in a godly, biblical manner. But it's not hard to draw a line and lead people toward repentant walking with Christ, especially if they are truly converted. They should, be, they should long to cast off their sin. That, that, that's, what, that's what salvation is. Salvation is I hate sin. Now, I hate sin because I love Christ. I love God. There, there, there's a guy that Jesus visits, Zacchaeus. And he goes to Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. 
And he's known for defrauding people, as all the tax collectors of the Jews were in those days. Defrauding and taking what was not his. And when Jesus comes to his house, it says this in Luke chapter 8, 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restored fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is, son of, since he is also a son of Abraham. Now, the, the important thing that you need to understand here is that Jesus does not talk about journey or conversation. Jesus came to his house. Zacchaeus repents and believes in Christ and immediately decides to change his life that he had created based on his former life. Do you understand that? Zacchaeus was a rich man. He threw a bountiful banquet party for Jesus. And he suddenly realizes that he needs to repent of stealing and defrauding and says, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to change my status. I'm going to change my way of life now because I've met Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't say to Zacchaeus, well, this one's hard, honestly, for me. It's your property now. I mean, it's going to be difficult for you to go from upper middle class to middle class. And, you know, you don't want to, you just met me and we're just on this journey and we're just having a conversation. No. What does he say? Salvation has come to this house, period. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And we need less pastors who are talking about the journey of the conversation and more pastors who are talking about sin, repentance, and righteousness in Jesus Christ, period. That's what we need. Because in a culture of deviancy, if you're going to be in the gray areas, you're unnecessary. Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, you're neither hot nor cold. What are you? Lukewarm. Another, another uh, uh, a similar phrase. You're in the gray area and you are useless to me. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's the show, guys. Thanks for staying for this eh, a bit of a long show today. Anyway, tomorrow we do have the deep dive Bible study back to 1 Kings chapter 17. We talk about Elijah finally. And I'm so glad that you were here. And I hope that you are blessed by this content. I hope you share it, like it, support it, subscribe, click the notification bell, and I will see you. Oh, 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 one last thing. <laughs> might, might as well put this out there too. Follow us on all the Instagram, social media channels, Twitter, uh, TikTok, because you never know what content of ours they're going to ban next. Okay, that's my final spiel, my final plug for following us and helping us out. God bless you. Have a good night. See you tomorrow.